0: Previously on the What's in Your Head podcast. Tipping culture is a divisive topic on TikTok, inspiring arguments about how much people should tip service workers and whether or not it's OK to just tip nothing at all.
1: Yes. Yes, it is.
0: This week, another tipping related TikTok is going viral posted by door- a DoorDash worker, At uh, this person's name, attracting more than 2.8 million views in three days. It shows a pile and it's literally a pile of orders supposedly being ignored by DoorDash drivers because the customers did not include a tip during the order. Services above
1: and beyond and sometimes you don't get your tip until after you make the delivery. That's funny you say
0: that Gordon because you're thinking logically. The What's in Your Head podcast can be found on Stitcher, Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are found. You can also download this podcast, as well as all podcasts from Digital 410 Media, at d-410.com. Welcome, everybody, to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And once again, this week is a redeployment episode. We're going to go all the way back in the archives, back to episode 38 with Nell Patton Rockmore. This is an interview I did in Lakeland, Georgia, during the first annual World War II weekend. I sit down with Nell Patton Rockmore. She is a matriarch in this town. This town heavily revolves around her and her family. And she gives us what we like to call, with those who are there, she not only talks about her experiences during World War II as a college student, but she talks about her husband's experiences and includes stories and letters from their family book. That's right, their family has a book. Um, It's a wonderful, beautiful book that their family has. And her husband's stories and letters are narrated by my brother, Gordon Abernathy co-host of the what's in your head podcast so i hope you guys enjoy this redeployment episode going back to episode 38 henry and jeff will be joining us next week obviously with the holidays we took a little extra week off because as you guys know the formerly known act computer studios is no longer the act computer studios and we remodeled a little bit and um, now it's the could be your name studio so if you have a small business and you want to sponsor the formerly act computer studio please email us at info at d-410.com, or mail call at wtspworldwar2.com. Say, hey, Don, I want to sponsor your podcast. I want my business name to be associated with your podcast, and this could be your branded studio for not only the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, but all the podcasts recorded here on the Digital 410 Media Network. That includes the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, the What's in Your Head podcast, and the Fail to Fail podcast podcast. So, if you'd like to have your company's name mentioned during each one of those shows and support what we do here at Digital 410, please email us once again at d410.com. That's info at d410.com and mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And as I said earlier, no worries. Jeff and Henry will be back. We'll be live next week. But until then, please enjoy this redeployment episode, episode 38.
1: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Averyfield.
0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast. That's your favorite World War II-based podcast. Yep, that's right. I just dropped the new from our tagline. You know, I've been thinking about changing that for a while, but someone actually hit me up on uh, Instagram today and asked me, how long are you going to keep the phrase new ...in your slug line of your new favorite World War II-based podcast. And yes, we have been around for a year, but for some people we may still be new. Um, our show is definitely growing and expanding, but you know, um, I think we'll just keep new in there for a little bit... ...and uh, at some point we'll change it. But anyhow, welcome to the show. Um, it's been about a week or two. Yeah, going on two weeks. You know, um, I haven't been slacking off. Um, I'm excited to announce that the Lakeland, Georgia... World War II weekend event went uh, spectacularly well, all things considering. Um, The weather was nice and chilly. It was in the high 60s and 70s on Saturday afternoon, but Friday night, I got there around uh, noon on Friday, and uh, lo and behold, Google Maps took me the wrong way. Um, So I'm driving down, I think it's 139, I'm taking the back roads. Interestingly enough, um, I actually crossed into Georgia via a two-lane thoroughfare, once again, Google Maps took me up the main interstate about 40 miles before the destination, so the, like the last 40 miles or so, I took a back road. But um, I turned on the old Burnt Church Road, which is where this event was taking place, at an old schoolhouse that had been relocated. It was originally built in 1926, and at some point, um, Bill Rockmore um, and his family acquired the building and relocated it, but more about Bill later. But um, So I'm driving down the road, and of course now my cell phone signal's cutting out, um, my Google Maps is cutting out, and I come across the Boy Scout campground. Now, for those of you who've listened to every episode, if you remember back when Jeremy Petrello was on the show, he explained that about a mile down from the location, there's a Boy Scout camp, and hopefully by the next event, or the third one, at some point we will incorporate a tactical event into this weekend that would take place at the Boy Scout camp, and so from that conversation, I knew the Boy Scout camp was a mile from the location where we we're having the event. And so I basically just uh, turned around, went the other way, and I'm driving down Burnt Church Road, and I come to a main intersection, and but as I cast my eyes about 200 yards down, I see a pyramid tent set up, and I was like, well, that's clearly my destination. And so I pulled in, and I registered, and I asked, hey, where am I going to set up my tent? Tim pointed over to the corner. He said, Allies Camp's over there next to Art Dersheimer. And I was like, come again? And now, once again, if you've listened to every episode of this podcast, Art has been on the show twice before. But I wasn't expecting a lot of Florida guys to be at this event because there was a um, conflicting schedule event going on that weekend that I knew a lot of our Florida reenactors were going to be at. So I was anticipating being one of the few guys from Florida at the event. I was ecstatic when I pulled up and I saw Art and uh, Sam Howe there. Um, Two guys that I do a lot of events with. And so instantly, obviously I knew Jeremy and one of his guys from a previous event, but I was anticipating being at a place all weekend with only one or two people I knew, but not extremely well. And as a lot of you who've been in the living history for a long time, especially around the same core group of guys, a big part of this hobby is the company in which you keep. And so, yes, I would have been all right if I spent a weekend in Georgia around a whole new batch of people. But one could argue that there's a chance that it may have not has been as fun or not has been as comfortable. You know, who knows? But having those guys there, you know, we've been doing this together for years. And so it made the whole weekend more enjoyable. So not only did I get to meet new guys, but um, I got to be with my normal crew of guys. And by the way, Art and Sam was only two of the crew that was there from florida i mean jerry and his son was there um a couple of the other guys and matter of fact i would say 60 percent maybe 70 percent of the reenactors at the lakeland Georgia event were from florida so florida was heavily represented there so you know i'm, I'm proud of all the florida cats who went up there to support this first time event um i will have jeremy petrella coming on and um maybe the next episode just to do a quick wrap up um kind of let everybody know what's going on in hopes that um you know, because anytime there's a first time event, it's kind of exploratory as far as the reenacting groups go, as far as who all goes, how many people go. And so, you know, a small handful of guys will go check out the event for the first year and then report back to everybody else. And if they say it's worth it the following year, more and more guys will go, the event grows, and the better things get. As far as I'm concerned, it was a great weekend. Like I said, Friday, it was it was a little cold when I got there. It did rain in the afternoon, but not bad. Um, I will say this is the first event I've ever done, despite the fact living in Florida that I have actually been rained on. But once again, it wasn't a big deal because Art and Sam had their pyramid tent set up. But it was interesting to see that my original 75-ish, 73-ish year old pup tent that I have never treated. I don't know if someone else has treated in the last couple years, but at least while it's been in my um, possession, it has not been retreated. The water beaded off of it beautifully. I don't know if it's the original waterproofing or if someone may have reapplied, but that was that was kind of nice to see how my original equipment would hold up to the weather. Um, anyhow, we all hung out that night, did what we normally do after the uh, sun goes down in a reenactment. Saturday came, the public came out, um, sun came out, no rain, it got the 70s, we did a weapons demo, we did a nice little um, reenactment, And uh, we had a great time, and I think everybody who was there had a great time. All in all, a first-year event. It was wonderful. Had a great time. Looking forward to it next year. It's a short five-hour drive from where I'm at. Um, We'll have Jeremy on, like I said, maybe uh, next episode. Give us more details on that. But the reason I'm rambling on about the Lakeland, Georgia uh, event is I got lucky in a way. Um, I've decided to start taking my equipment with me to these events one, um, to try to interview some fellow reenactors while we we're there. But two, to be quite honest, is hopefully that I would run into a vet or someone who was alive during that era. And it just so happened, um, Saturday, we were doing our weapons demo, and there was a nice lady out in the audience, and Art was standing next to her. She looked like she's probably about in her early 80s. And Art was giving her heads up, hey, this next gun is loud. You may want to hold your ears, and so on and so forth. He was just having a great conversation with her. And after the weapons demo, we were all sitting back at our tent, and she walked over, and she was thanking us for what we did, and a town resident came up, and he kind of started showing off on her behalf, and um, as I would soon find out, uh, this woman plays a huge part in the community of Lakeland, Georgia, and as did her husband for his passing, and so the guy asked this lady, whose name I would learn to be is uh, Nell Rockmore, he said, "'Miss Nell, where were you at on Pearl Harbor?' And Miss Nell laughed and said, I was a sophomore in college. And I looked over at Jerry Oxley and I said, I got to interview this lady. And so I listened to, you know, her and the gentleman and I waited for their conversation to be done. And I introduced myself and asked her if she'd be so kind, if she'd be interested to sit down and do an interview. She said, yes, she was going to come back later that night for the USO show. She was going to go home and rest and come back. But she granted me an interview and so I sat down with her, and much to my surprise, the Rockmores have published, and much to my surprise, when I asked her to come back for the interview, she presented me with this book. It's called Roots, Rocks, and Recollections by Nell Patton Rockmore, And this book is an entire story of her family. It's a little over 280 pages. Um, and matter of fact, it had just been republished to include her grandchildren. The original first printing was done in 1989, second printing was done in 1998, and the third printing was done in 2015. Now, the reason I bring this up is because there is an entire chapter in this book that her husband dictated for her explaining his wartime memories. And so this is the first time that not only do I get to interview someone who was alive during that time but they also have an entire chapter in a book that her husband dictated presenting in some great detail some of his wartime experience. And so during this interview that's coming up, um, after the interview was done, I decided what I would do is to lift some information from this chapter, uh, rephrase it a little bit, reword it, and as I'm talking to Miss Rockmore about her experience through World War II and her husband's experience, when we start to talk about his experience war experience we will fade into his dictation of his World War II experience and so this is just a sample of the chapter out of this book once again the book is called Roots Rocks and Recollection by Nell Patton Rockmore and so I hope you uh, you enjoy I actually caught one I caught it on a worm because you guys know that that's pretty much all I caught a peacock so
1: yeah, caught wow. a bass on a worm. It he, is he a full nobody. blast, full-on shit show is what it was.
0: Every every which way it went wrong. I would say the hotel is kind of like the fishing equivalent of a hunter's a hunter's cabin.
1: And I slept in there because I got Mr. Schmarr pants one and two. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> the Tackle Your Personal Best Podcast. Check us out on Spotify and YouTube brought to you by Digital 410 Media.
0: Digitized live from the ACT Computer's mobile studio via Lakeland, Georgia. Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your new favorite World War II podcast, and ignore the echo, we are recording live in uh, Lakeland, Georgia, believe it or not, and we just finished up with the first day battle reenactment and USO show. And I had the great privilege, as we often do when we do these reenactments, to uh, meet someone who, um, as I put it on our show, who you know, those who were there. Joining us today is Nell Rockmore. Nell, how are you doing this evening?
2: Fine, how are you?
0: I am doing fantastic. Now, earlier today we had a reenactment. And actually, you know, you are such a character and it's such a sport. You made two separate trips out here today. You came this morning for the... Um, The weapons demonstration, and that's when I met you, and I heard a gentleman ask you um, where you were at during Pearl Harbor, and then that's how you and I got to talking, then you went home, and then you came back for the battle reenactment, came home, went home again, and then came back for the USO show, so I greatly want to, first off, thank you for your efforts and your energy and coming down here three separate times today, that is fantastic, but uh, let's go back a little bit, let's start where it all began, Um, where were you born?
2: I was born right here it was not Lakeland then it was milltown
0: Milltown I'm assuming based on the name there's a lot of saw milling going on here
2: yes we have a huge eleven thousand acre pond here and that's where the milling started
0: so they would cut the trees down float them down the lake over to the mill
2: no they had uh, lumber preparation equipment okay that they Brought the trees in by uh, not trucks or didn't have trucks back then, by wagons. Sure. They would come in on wagons.
0: And uh, just for those listening, uh, we are in a beautiful facility here. This building was built in
2: 1926. 19- I believe.
0: 1926. Has beautiful hard floors throughout. Um, The USO show just ended, and we are located next to a very busy hallway. So if you hear some slamming in the background, um, we are fine. Uh, It's just a very busy building, and people are having a good time, and they're starting to clear out. The nice thing about this town, um, Lakeland, Georgia, it's still a very small community. Um, First and foremost, you guys have a very interesting title. You guys are the Georgia Historical uh, Mural City. And you have murals of people who grew up and kind of had an impact on this town. In past episodes, J- Jeremy you know, talked to us about it, and, and so we kind of know about the murals. But you presented me today with a cool little app. You guys are extending the mural feature, and now you have an app so that as you drive around the city and you look at this you know, brochure that you have, each destination has a numerical number assigned to it. You can pull up the app and play the audio and you guys have this fantastic some of them are diary entries that have been produced and read aloud and different stories and first-hand accounts of the of the people that the mural is uh, presenting
2: correct they're all real people i'm i'm on one i was uh one and a half years old at the time and my sister and i are on the, our real playhouse that our grandfather had built for us mm-hmm. when we were little Children.
0: Obviously, valdesta and Georgia in general has changed significantly since, you know, 1941. Um, but I, I would assume that's part of your draw and your love for your community is that it here hasn't changed that much. But uh, what are some of the things that you can remember the biggest changes from that time in college to now in, in the Georgia area? Oh, goodness. <laughs> it's kind of a broad question. I'm just.
2: The cell phone is. <laughs> most popular thing that's happened since then but um, it uh, radio came along in in the 20s and that was that was exciting and the first radio was in the drugstore really uptown and people would gather in the drugstore to listen to the radio
0: (laughs) that's fantastic as I alluded to I heard the answer where you were In Pearl Harbor, so let's pick up there. Where were you during the Pearl Harbor attack?
2: I was in college in Valdosta, 20 miles from here. And uh, the first I knew about the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, my uh, college friends' parents came to visit her, and they told us that, that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. And I had never heard of Pearl Harbor.
0: Now, here you are, you're in college, and for all intents and purposes, the world just changed for you. Uh, Pearl Harbor just got bombed. Um, you're hearing all these radio reports. A lot of the young men are now heading down to the local recruiting stations. What was some of the, the changes that happened here at home? What's the, what are some of the things that, you know, you and your counterparts did for your part of the war effort here back at home?
2: Well, <clears throat> we had no paved roads in, in this county when I was born, and we had a, a a governor who lived here in Lakeland. Really, and he did so much. He was he was contemporary with Roosevelt, Franklin mm-hmm. Roosevelt, and uh, he brought electricity here and running water and free school books and just so much modernization during his time.
0: Now, did a lot of the boys from this community, did they go off the war, I I would assume?
2: Oh, yes. Everybody, people were so patriotic back then. The, The whole culture was so different, and it's a shame that that has been lost. Yeah. Everybody was, we never complained about doing without butter or car tires for the car.
1: It was April 18, 1942. Jimmy Doolittle led a handful of B-25s from the deck of the aircraft carrier Hornet, which was on an inconsequential but morale-building raid on Japan. Meanwhile, back at home, nationwide rationing had been implemented, starting with automobile tires moving on the sugar and then gasoline. Following the rationing, air raid signal policies were announced, war bonds and saving stamp drivers were launched, and the entire nation seemed to be doing their part in the war effort.
0: Did the most of the community, was that where they made their living was in milling or what? Farming was the basic,
2: Mm -hmm. most most of the people here were farmers.
0: Well, the good side about that is you guys were able to supplement your food and your income by growing your own food and Mm -hmm. trading, I would assume, trading with your neighbors and helping, Mm -hmm. you know, maintain.
2: Well, most farmers were small Mm -hmm. farmers and they raised their own chickens, they raised their own hogs, and did everything they needed. They, almost everything they needed, they raised at home. Sure. We had no indoor toilets back then when I was born. Everybody had a, a outdoor privy.
1: Bill Rockmore was in his second year at Delonica, where all of the male students were members of the Reserve Officers Training Corps. Within the hour of the news of the Pearl Harbor bombing, half of the cadets were clamoring to join the military and teach the Japs a thing or two. But in reality, most of them finished out the school year in spite of the fact that the recruiters from all branches of service became commonplace on the campus. At
0: what point did you meet your husband?
2: He was, we were both in college. He was in college in North Georgia, Jalonica.
0: Okay.
2: And uh. met him on a blind date, uh, arranged uh, by the, by Governor Rivers' his wife, who was a cousin, okay. who had a cousin lived in uh, Gainesville, and she knew the, the, the man I married at college. So uh, she was coming down to visit Ms. Rivers. And so Bill, my husband, ask her for a date. He was going to come over to Lakeland from Nashville and have a date with her. Well, in the meantime, her boyfriend, who was in the Navy, mm-hmm. came home. Uh-oh. So she wanted to be with him. Sure. So Ms. Rivers arranged for me to have a date with Bill, and he didn't know it till he got there to the Rivers' house. Yeah. And uh, so— Anyway...
0: So what turned out originally as probably a little bit of disappointment and frustration turned into one of the best things that ever happened to him. It really,
2: really did. On May Fourteenth,
1: 1942, Bill enlisted in the Army Air Corps' activation cadet training program and was subsequently placed on a detached service.
0: And so how long before he went off to war from your first date? Oh, that was in
2: 1941... And uh, we we uh, maybe had two or three dates. He'd come over, and we'd go fishing, and exciting things like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, everybody loved to dance back then. Absolutely. And, and we jitterbug. And yeah,
0: that's the first thing yeah. you asked me today when you met me. Is like, do I know how to jitterbug? And I said, well, <laughs> I tried a foxtrot. I've never tried a jitterbug, but you know, I would I would give it a whirl if the opportunity presented itself. But um, I take it you were probably a a pretty good jitterbugger back in the day. You can hold your own.
2: Well, all the girls at that time loved to dance. And at college, we had, every Saturday night, we would have a girl break dance. Oh, yeah? And the Ballasta boys were real good dancers. So we had a good time every Saturday night. And Moody was getting started back then and some of the Moody. Boys would come to the dances too, so it was just fun. College, Sounds college like was great fun. Great time.
0: <laughs> now, how big was valdessa College back then? Was, was there it? There were
2: three hundred students. Three hundred students. All girls. It was, it was Georgia State Woman's College. Okay. And had been, well, it had changed names once, I think, but <clears throat> during the war, mm-hmm. most of the men were gone, and the few that were were still here, they allowed to go to the college. Sure. There were 10. I think we had 10 main, uh, ten male students. Because they were really popular, because they were good <laughs> dancers. And uh, then from then on, it was always co-ed.
1: The wait turned out to be much longer than anybody anticipated. This is partially due to the fact that there were no shortages of volunteers in those days. While waiting that summer, Bill worked in the tobacco industry, first at Nashville, then moving with the buyers from Farmville to North Carolina. The Air Corps came calling Bill's name in October of nineteen forty two, when he was sent a train ticket and a classification in the pilot training program, which was located in Nashville.
0: So you were what year were you in your in college career during Pearl Harbor? You say you're a sophomore or a junior?
2: I must have been a freshman because that was 41. I, 41, graduated from high school in 40 and started college in 44. In 41, I was a freshman.
0: And so your husband, Bill, did he enlist or did he get drafted?
2: Oh, he enlisted. All, all the men were just, they were ready to go when we got attacked.
0: And he joined the Army Air Corps, correct? Right. And He I,
2: was flying a plane overseas uh, in, in when he was 19.
0: That had to have been hard for you here at home. I mean, here's the, the love of your life. You met him on a blind date. It probably felt like um, fate or destiny. And much like everybody else, he's, he swept up off in the war. And I'm sure being in such a small community, you guys were probably hearing of mothers and um, girlfriends and wives getting telegrams about their, their significance, others being lost in the war. What was it like on a daily basis... Um, being here, there's probably a little bit of, I would assume, a little sense of helplessness, if you will, because all you can do is really write letters that try to keep up their morale. But even with V-Mail, the, the time delay from the time you wrote it and mailed it off to the time you received it, so much had happened between that time. What was it like living in those circumstances back then?
2: Well, uh, it was... It was the most dramatic time. Uh, our friends would get these letters, and you know, just it was sad, but it was uh, everybody was so patriotic. Yeah. Till we we kept a positive positive attitude. I yeah. don't know why, but uh, I guess to keep the morale up for the the men in service.
1: Next, Bill returned to the Troop Training Center located at Lakeland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas for pre-flight training. The training involved running five miles a day over hills and through valleys referred to as the obstacle course. This shortly increased the twice a day ground school in military training. Upon graduation at Fredericks, Bill was commissioned a second lieutenant.
0: Being here in Millville at the time, how far did you would you have would you have to travel to Valdez to go to a movie house to get the latest news, and to see the latest news reels?
2: Oh. Uh,
0: where was the closest movie theater from here, or where? Uh, in t- Valdez. Yeah, so you'd have to travel out to Valdez to see the movies and mm-hmm. get the local news footage and and to mm-hmm. see what was going on visually in the war.
2: In the radio. Yeah. After uh, we we got a lot of news on radio, mm-hmm. more than more than the theater. Uh. Because it, well, it kept pretty current. Yeah. Of the radio.
0: Is there any particular um, memories that uh, Bill shared with you um, while you guys were together? that, you know, Obviously, um, a lot of the guys, they didn't really talk much about it because everybody was there. And they didn't want to feel like a braggart. But as time has gone by and a lot of the guys realized that this history is important, they kind of opened up and shared a little bit more. Is there a particular story or an event that you can remember that Bill shared with you from any of his time over there did he pretty much keep that private?
2: no, he he loved talking about it with other with friends mm-hmm. who had been in service and of course most of them had been
0: sure,
2: especially a good friend Jim Perry that he had grown up with who was in the army mm-hmm. and they used to kid each other about about who had the hardest yeah. hardest time of it you know and all. But no, he he really liked to talk about it, and uh, he kept up with with his all of his flight crews, uh, all those all those years.
1: On June Fourteenth, nineteen forty four, Bill and crew departed Hunter Field in their B twenty six G number four one five five, which the men had named Rocky's Rocket. They had uniforms and maps for both the European and Pacific theaters, but were not told until the last minute that their destination was in Europe. Upon their arrival to the European Theater, Bill's crew was assigned to the 559th Squadron and the 387th Bomb Group, which were stationed at Stony Cross, England.
0: Yeah, I know there's a, another great photo here in this book where him and his, his guys got together for years and years to um, kind of remember each other and to show that, you know, to keep that brotherhood alive that they had built up in their time over there.
1: They arrived a little before dark on a cloudy, drizzly July day. Bill and company checked into the squadron orderly room, handed over their orders, and were told where the officers and airmen were quartered. So they loaded onto their backs, their bags, suitcases, duffel bags, and struck out looking for a bunk. The first Nissen hunt that Bill Rockmore stuck his head into, no one seemed to look up while they were sitting or lying on their cot. Bill received no response while asking if there was any vacancies. Once again, sticking his head into the next hut in line and asking about the vacancies, Bill got the same exact response. Silence. Although Bill spotted a couple of cots with mattresses rolled up on them, no one grunted a word. At the fourth hut in line, Bill stuck his head in and asked the now well-worn question. Any vacancies? This time, a response. Yeah, come on! The Hartman crew had also been a replacement crew, and they had been there a few weeks themselves. Bill suspected that he had experienced a similar reception, and that's what prompted this crew to be a little more hospitable.
0: So you finished college in '44. so the war, right. the, the war hadn't ended yet. What did mm-hmm. you do after college, what did you do um, career-wise? Did you... Um...
2: I, first thing I did, I taught school in Lakeland.
0: Well, that's, I was going to right back up and say, I guess the first question would be, what did you major in in college, education?
2: I majored in violin. Violin? And minored in Spanish. And taught shorthand and typing, which I had learned in high school. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I was uh, named the clerk of the draft board.
1: Upon entering the bomb group, they had expected to be welcomed as replacements. And that would enable some of these veteran crews to go home. Bill was totally unprepared for the almost hostile reception that was received from almost all of the veteran crews. It took a long time to figure out why there was such a bad attitude, but they guessed that it was a combination of many factors. First of all, when the B-26s were first used in Europe, they really didn't know what to do with them, and they were utilized poorly. The B-26 had not been a big success. It had a bad reputation in the United States, only because a lot of the pilots tried to fly the aircraft too slowly and crashed all over the landscape. It was a matter of poor piloting as opposed to a poorly designed airplane.
0: Now, were you writing up the letters? Were you doing administrative work? What exactly were you doing for the draft board?
2: Well, I was the only only person in the office. We had a board who would meet about once a month. But by then... uh, It was like 1946, I guess.
1: By the time Bill Rockmore entered the group, many crews had completed their 65th mission and had gone home. But a good number of the original crews had been shot down multiple times, and those crews who still had a few missions left thought they would never leave alive and were demoralized, disgruntled, and unhappy. To them, a new crew meant nothing but flak bait. The last thing they wanted was any new friends after he had already lost too many old ones. In the meantime, the replacement crews were split up so that each crew member flew his first five missions with a veteran crew. This was in order to better understand and learn the tactics and procedures before reuniting with his own crew. And
2: then Bill and I married
1: in 47.
0: Okay, because that's what I was going to ask you if it was mm-hmm. during 45, well, 44 45, I was going to ask if you had the, the misfortune of having to type up letters of boys you knew and I was gonna ask you if people would come to you and say, hey, have you heard anything? But by this time, the war has planned. the war has been planned. over.
1: Bill's first mission was on July 24, 1944, at Levitt, France. After the June 6th D-Day invasion, the Allies had poured hundreds of thousands of troops along with untold numbers of tanks and artillery pieces and other fighting equipment. But the Germans had savagely fought the Allied advances, had stymied them along the fighting front, scarcely 40 miles from the invasion beaches. The Allies scheduled a massive bombing raid involving some 15,000 airplanes to drop just across the front lines from our troops and onto the Germans. Since the bombers were at altitude ranging from 10 to 25,000 feet, there would be no way of distinguishing our forces from the enemy. So a marker smokescreen was laid down to defend the fighting line. Unfortunately, strong winds drifted the smokescreen in the wrong direction, and many of the bombers rained bombs on their own troops, killing, among others, General McNair. It would be days before Bill and his crew learned of friendly fire. Bill was told that his group dropped their payload on the Germans, located far away from the front lines. But most of us had no way of knowing.
0: But how long did the draft continue after the war? Were they concerned with um, issues arising after the war, after you know the treaty's been signed? Was there a lot of demand? Were they still heavily drafting guys? No, uh,
2: it was really... <laughs> it was really not much activity in my office then yeah Mm
0: -hmm. and um then now after he came home from the war did he continue any sort of um flying career or anything did he ever fly as a passion
2: he kept as soon as we could afford a plane he he uh, bought an interest in one and he flew always flew as long as he lived until he couldn't quite pass his medical
0: yeah, and he
2: couldn't fly. But he we, he kept a plane and flew it in business a lot.
0: After college, you worked at the draft board for a while, but then you went on the teaching, correct?
2: Yeah, I taught first. Oh, okay. And then draft board. And then we got married. And sure. And Bill was uh, in the reserves, but— uh, Station at at Miami, so we lived in Miami the first okay. six months we were married, and then we moved back up to Lakeland. And Bill was the editor of the local newspaper. Really?
0: And uh, how did how did he land that? Before he went off the war, did he have any sort of journalism background, or is it just something he fell into? How did that work? When
2: out? Uh, we, when we lived in Miami. We lived there twice for six months each time. I think it was that first time. He went to law school and also worked at the Miami Herald. Okay. And I went to I went to work as a secretary for a a wholesale liquor company, which (laughs) was a great place to work. I I loved it. (laughs) I was. We were not big drinkers then, but it was—it was just a great, great place to work. Nice. I was working, he was working, and we—we we couldn't, we could hardly make a living. Sure. Both of us working, and by that time we had uh, one child, so we moved back to Miami and stayed for about six months. And my mother died, so my daddy wanted us to come back to Lakeland. We thought he needed us. He really didn't, but he, we thought he did. So we moved back here and stayed. But my father was uh, uh, in the seed processing okay. business, small time, small sure. time. And uh, so Bill went to work for Patent and Seed, and he stayed there the rest of his. His life and really built the company to. It's, I think Patent Seeds is the largest uh, seed and sod business in the, probably in the country.
0: Wow, that's a that's a that's a quite a legacy to, to to create.
2: So he really, really built up the business, and uh, we ex- uh, expanded into Middle Georgia, and then South Carolina, and then North Carolina, a little bit in Virginia
0: that's beautiful so
2: it's you can read about it in the book
0: I will (laughs) what was Miami like in the late 40's and early 50's compared to now obviously less crowded I would assume
2: Oh, yes it it was a leisurely there was a leisurely attitude Mm -hmm. and good eating places just that uh the lobster day and day is just the greatest thing in the world and uh so we we enjoyed our what little time he had off, and, uh, and uh, his mother had already moved to Miami before we got married. So she kept our little boy, Rocky, while we both worked, and so.
0: And that's the way. That's the way it tended to be back then, and 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 some communities it's still that way nowadays. But I kind of, kind of, going back a little bit what you're saying about patriotism and, and where we are in this country now. It's, it seems like there's, well, I definitely know there seems to be at least in the larger communities there's a less sense of importance on community and in, and sadly in some aspects family. Um, it seems like nowadays everybody's, you know, they they're more interested in taking care of themselves and and what's in their immediate vicinity, and a lot. More, sad as it is most people they'll live on the same street for 10 years and maybe know one of their neighbors mm-hmm. and i think maybe that's a big part of our our separation and our divide in this country i mean if if we don't care about the guy living next to us we surely aren't going to care about the guy living two states over no. and um it's just things have definitely changed greatly one of the things i notice because i i do computer work and it work in particular, down in Fort Myers, Florida, where I live, when I'm driving around, it seems like the only place other than on commercial buildings, for example, the only place I ever see American flags are in the smaller gated communities. Out in the main areas, you rarely see them anymore, and it's just—it's almost like some people feel it's, it symbolizes something that the, that we shouldn't be proud of, which I completely don't understand. I don't know—I don't know who or why. The focus somebody has successfully tried to turn this American flag into a symbol of something that it doesn't represent, and i think I think part of that is for not to get too deep into off the subject here, but I think people forget that the flag doesn't represent our government, our flag doesn't represent our country per se; it represents us, a group of people and the things that we do. Yes, the flag has been around through our history, but you know. Our, our government branch, they have their own flags that represent their own branch, just like every state has their own flag in every city, every township. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, people want to look at our flag instead of looking at the flag as a representation of us and all the great things we do. It's almost like they want to see it as a symbol of stuff that politicians are doing that they don't uh, agree with or governments don't, you know. I don't know where we go from here to get back there.
2: I'm afraid there's no way to, to go back now. It's... It's just gotten out of control.
0: It seems like the closest we got to it for about two weeks was after
2: 9-11. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I
0: lived in Columbus at the time, and everybody had American flags in their cars, the flags on the windows. Mm-hmm. But two weeks later, you'd see them laying in the street. Where they'd roll down their window and forget them, all and they'd fly off and wouldn't stop. And mm-hmm. So for about maybe two weeks after 9-11, you know, we kind of got back there. Mm-hmm. But we have, we have short attention spans now, and we, and we move on mm-hmm. to something else. And I don't get it.
2: Well, we have, to, we have to blame it on politics yeah. and greed. People are naturally greedy.
0: If you had some advice for the younger generation coming up, um, whether it's how to be successful, how to have a great family, how to be a pillar in your community, which I know both you and your husband, this town looks at you with great esteem, and they, they seem to, Love you guys and all the things you've done because, as you're saying, your your husband took that business and grew it, but from I've only been in this town for 24 hours, and I've heard stories about you guys took that success and that hard work and you gave back to your community. I mean, here today I just met you and you're showing me, hey, you're still actively involved in the historical society in your community. You have a very big part in the um, the mural history, to this day so actively involved. What advice would you give to, to my generation, my kid's generation, the younger generation, for finding success in life?
2: Well, I think one good rule, instead of criticizing other people and things that other people do, first look at yourself and see what your faults are
0: those who live in glass houses.
2: Right. And then if you'll focus on what would be good for other people and not what's good for you, it would make a lot of difference if people had that attitude. The church is a great place to, to be with loving people. And uh, it's a shame that families don't, stay together so many fathers just leave the family it's it's because of government benefits that has caused all this family breakup Mm -hmm. and uh, it's still it's it's sad now that retired people can't afford to get married that love each other and want want to get married. They can't afford to get married. They lose the check. Yeah, and it's so common, and that's that's not right. That's not right.
0: Yeah, people have to make uh, adjustments and sacrifices just so they can continue the lifestyle that they want to accustomed to, but the mm-hmm. lifestyle they need to have to afford over inflated medication and and to uh, handle you know daily life. Mm-hmm. Now. I would assume if Bill was here and I asked him the same question I, I would assume part of it would come to about hard work and following your dreams because uh, clearly the man tried many things and was successful at all of them oh, and yes. wasn't afraid of working hard and uh, and grinding it out as, as you know as my generation says he he seems like the type of guy who just always had an idea and chased it down okay. to its fullest extent
2: okay. a lot of vision and uh he whatever time the job took that's what he spent on it. Uh, just but that attitude is not very prevalent anymore
0: yeah it seems that people are one they don't want to work hard they want the, le- the most amount for the least amount of effort mm-hmm. and two people i don't know if it's i'm not looking at it right but it also seems like people are less willing to take chances on adventurous ideas, adventurous business opportunities, or just enjoying life. A lot of people get into a routine and a rut, and they don't want to get out of it, and before they know it, time has gone by.
2: One of the worst things that happened here was the, the child labor laws. Mm-hmm. Our children started working in tobacco, mm-hmm. mean, hard work, mm-hmm. when they were like five or six five or six years old. And they'd get up while it was still dark and go work and come in, come in tired and take a bath and go to bed. And then the same thing, of course, it didn't last but several weeks. Mm-hmm. But it was the greatest character builder that our children ever had. Yeah. And now it's not even legal to do that.
0: Yep. My mom still lives in a small town called Warsaw, Kentucky. And um, a large percentage of the community still grow tobacco. And their school closes down early during tobacco season so that their families can get their tobacco in and, ha- and hung in the barns and dried out and ready to send out so that their families can can you know provide for themselves. And that's one of the things that people don't realize over the last... Ten years, there's been a very, very strong push for tobacco, against tobacco in all forms. And I'm not here to say smoking is great or it's not great. It definitely has its health risk, and, you know, there's no doubt against that. But I think from the outside looking in, people who didn't grow up, you know, my cousins, their first job was picking tobacco at $0.10 cents a stick, you know. Um, they got paid for My mom, you know, she would go out in harvest season and make extra money picking tobacco. I think when people hear tobacco, they think of the Philip Morris' and, and the big com- companies. They don't realize how many small families still to this day make their money off of grown tobacco. Mm-hmm. And it, it is very hard work. But um, hard work teaches a work ethic.
2: Absolutely.
0: And I think that's uh, one of the other things that we're we're missing out on. And um, one other thing i like to point out, obviously... Um, <coughs> out momentarily a little bit ago that when I met you, you know, you're, you're so active in your community. And I I stand to believe, not to go too hard into the work stuff, but I think having a job or even a passion that keeps you busy like a job, that is the key to a long life. Having a purpose, something to do when you get up in the morning.
2: Absolutely. I worked until. 1968 my, <clears throat> I retired from, I was a postmaster for mm-hmm. 12 and a half years, that was my last job and it was wonderful because I'd see the people every, every day come in the post office and things were so different back then our priority was delivering the mail Rain, we sleet got or something snow. we got something, we didn't know who that was who it was, we'd call the city hall or ask somebody. Somebody would know about them. Sure. But now it's all mechanized and
0: computer scanners and everything else. Yeah. Well, when, how did you get into the postal thing? Not to back up, but you went from teaching to the draft board, and then you um, you had your first child. Did you go back after your child was in school, or at what point did you get involved in the postal service?
2: Well. Actually, I ended up having five children, Wow! and usually I would take off about two weeks and go back to work, and we'd have, uh, we had somebody to take care of the children, and, and I kept working. Uh, I went back to school teaching for a couple of years at a little country school. I taught fourth and fifth grades mm-hmm. at a little country school, and then I got the job as postmaster.
0: So you... You went from, te- you went from teaching to postmaster. You didn't work the route. You didn't work. You know, you weren't delivering oh, no. mail at all. You no,
2: I forgot. I worked at Moody. Okay. For four years, but before
0: postmaster. Sure.
2: And uh, I was secretary to the wing surgeon. Okay. And learned so much at that job and loved it, but that that was before.
0: Now I know a lot of the guys when they came home from the war a lot of them got jobs in the postal service and that provided mm-hmm. great jobs great benefits for a lot of our vets for a lot of years going back a little bit to the war and before I let you go we we'll wrap this up clearly when this was all going on you guys never I couldn't imagine you guys oh yeah we're we're making history here it was probably just this is the, this was the cards we were dealt let's deal with it but in your wildest dreams did did you ever think that your generation and the horrible things that you guys and the men had to go through would be um, celebrated so many years later? And, you know, here we are having the World War II Memorial Weekend here in uh, your town. In your wildest dreams, did you would think all these years later that there would be this much of a spotlight shine on your generation and in the war?
2: No, I never really thought that far ahead <laughs> Yeah.
0: well I, I'm grateful for this interview and I'm grateful for the book and I would definitely read it and um, before I let you go, um, before we get out of here I'll get your email so that once this is up I'll send you a copy of it and uh, you can add it to your collection of your, uh, your family's archives thank you so much for your time, it's been an absolute pleasure you're such a delight and thank you so much well thank you bye bye And just a few more items on the house cleaning checklist. Um, I just want to give everybody an update on our show, how we're trying to reach out to more people via more platforms. So as a lot of you know, throughout the last year, we've primarily been available for download via whatstheskeletonbutt.com, with two D's, not T's, or d-410.com, as well as Stitcher. Stitcher was pretty much our primary distribution source for the longest time. And then we picked up iTunes. And so now here's the latest update. If you don't want to download it directly from our website and you want to have it automatically notify you on your phone or synchronize with your um, iTunes, either go to Apple Podcast, iTunes, it's the same thing. Go up into the search box and look for WTSP World War II. That should bring it up. If not, just type in What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast now. There is another podcast with the same name about the show The Office, but I think it only ran for a few episodes. So type in WTSP World War II. If that don't work, type in What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, and you'll find us that way. Same thing if you're on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Music now, and apparently Pandora just launched a new podcast platform, so I'm going to try to get us on Pandora as well. So just a quick rollback. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Music, and iHeartRadio. That's all of them. So you can find us there as well as d-410.com or whatsthescuttlebutt.com. And while we're on the subject of the website and supporting the show, thanks to everybody in the past who has purchased one of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast t-shirts, I'm happy to announce I finally did re-release a new version of a new shirt with the USMC camo-covered M1 helmet along with the microphone. Now, these are actually photos of my real helmets because I didn't want to risk getting any sort of cease and desist for copyright infringement so on these shirts with the helmets those are actually my helmets on a pedestal in the podcast studio i took a picture of them painstakingly deleted everything else out with photoshop and made this logo i hope you guys like it um i don't make a whole hell of a lot of money off the shirts but i do make a few bucks literally a few bucks so if you want to support the show or more importantly spread the word about the podcast go to dehyphen410.com or what's the scuttlebutt.com. Click on the merch icon. It'll take you to Teespring. There's a whole slew of shirts in there. I'm going to work on getting some more logos out there and more designs, but once again they're all going to be original. And so it takes a little while. But if you want to support the podcast and support what we're trying to do here, you can do that via dehyphen410.com. That is D-the hyphen symbol 410.com or what's the scuttlebutt.com. Or you can find links on the facebook page as well uh, please pick up a t-shirt thank you so much okay so about a week ago i had a um, sticker manufacturing company send me some demo stickers of my podcast and so i got like a small handful of stickers for what's the scuttlebutt and they're not large by any means i think they're three three inches by three inches they're nice and small but anyhow i got a handful of stickers i don't know what to do with so i thought why not offer them to you guys? So if you want a small, small, small sticker, email me at info at d 410com That's info at d410.com or mail call at what's the scuttlebutt.com with your name and your address, and I will happily send you a sticker for supporting the show. Thank you so much.